morning, St. Barnabas. Our reading for today is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, and the Bible reads, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Um, thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful to Desiree for sharing her story with us this morning. It is a very encouraging thing, isn't it, to share our faith journey with one another. And I particularly enjoyed that phrase, scary friendliness, which uh, is rather interesting, isn't it? Yeah, something for us to reflect on. Good. Well, let's have our Bibles open then, please, at the passage that Durban read for us. And uh, let me pray, as always. The writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Heavenly Father, we Pray most humbly and ask that your word would do that tremendous work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, um, a film was released under the title Goodbye Lenin. Uh, it was released to critical acclaim. If uh, some of you know, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. You know Rotten Tomatoes? They gave it a 90% approval rating, so it must have been quite good. Uh, it tells the story of a woman living in East Berlin under communist rule. Uh, the woman herself is a member of the Communist Party, and uh, at the time, communist countries in the East were separated, weren't they, from the rest of Europe by the Iron Curtain and indeed the city of Berlin itself was split down the middle by the famous Berlin Wall. Well, in the film in 1989, this woman uh, suffers a massive heart attack and she sinks into a coma which lasts for several years. Uh, while she's unconscious, the Berlin Wall uh, is demolished and uh, by the time she wakes up, the Communist Party she loved has long since disappeared and uh, everything in life 
has changed. So Western brands like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Marks and Spencer have found their way into Berlin. East and West have been reunited. But that's where the trouble begins because this woman's health is now so terribly fragile that any kind of shock will kill her. So uh, her son takes her home and desperately tries to keep her in the dark about German reunification. And what he does is he gets some friends and neighbours together uh, to make imaginary news reports, uh, which the son then plays to her through the TV screen. And these reports say that the Berlin Wall is still intact, the Communist Party is still in power, and he even gives his mother the same East German food that they used to eat uh, before McDonald's and Coca-Cola came to town. The reality is that East and West Germany have been reunited, but she carries on living as if all the old divisions are still very much in place. And the tagline for the film puts it like this, quote, in 79 square meters of Berlin, East Germany lives on. Well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is super concerned that you and I should not be like that woman. Uh, so he begins this section of Ephesians with a, a passionate appeal that we would not live in a fantasy world and carry on as if absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, we all know people like that, sincere people who call themselves Christians, but who carry on living in exactly the same way as they did before. Now that, my friends, is a tragedy. But the Apostle Paul would actually say it's worse than that. He would say that to carry on living like that is actually to waste your life. Because the reality is that if you are a real Christian, everything has changed. And now your life has a far higher and much more wonderful purpose than it had before. Now you can see that if you look down with me at verse 1 of our text, where, the, uh, where Paul says, uh, I urge you, I appeal to you, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, whatever does he mean? Well, in the original language, the word worthy was actually used to describe the, the tipping point uh, or the point of balance on a set of scales. Uh, now, obviously, they weren't talking about the digital things that we use today. They were talking about the scales my mother used, where you put weights on one side and you poured in the sugar or the flour or whatever it was on the other side. And when the thing balanced, what you put in that side was, in Greek, worthy. And Paul is saying, you see, that for the Christian, a worthy life is a life which balances the calling we've received from God. What is that calling? Well, at the beginning of Ephesians, we're told, aren't we, that one of the most precious things that God has done for us 
is that he's told us how the world ends. He's told us that a day is coming when he's going to bring all things together under the rule of Jesus, Ephesians 1 verse 10. And in preparation for that tremendous event through the gospel, God is reaching out to men and women everywhere. People whose sin has kind of created a spiritual Berlin Wall between God and man and between us and our fellow human beings. And through the preaching of the gospel, God is urging us to come to Jesus to have that spiritual wall, that Berlin Wall demolished so that we can be reconciled, so that we can be reunited with God and with one another. And now, you see, our calling is to prove that this immense change really has happened to us. And the way that we prove that is by our life together in the fellowship of the local church. The point is, you see, that our life together should prove that our sin really has been taken away and instead of being under the rule of an evil dictator, in our case the devil, of course, no, now we're reunited to God and to one another under the rule of King Jesus. And Paul's message is that when you live like that, you are living in the real world. And that is a life worth living. It's a life that honors God and brings him glory. The question, of course, is, well, what does that mean in practice? What do our lives need to look like day by day for them to be worthy? Well, in the second half of Ephesians, in chapters 4 to 6, we're called to embrace only two priorities. Very simple, really. The first is unity, and the second is holiness. Unity and holiness are the hallmarks of lives that are worthy, of lives that are pleasing to God. And in our passage this morning, Paul's focus is very much on the first of these two priorities, unity. And uh, if you want a verse to get us started, well, a very good candidate would be verse 3, wouldn't it? Where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And what I want to do is to try and use the passage to answer the question, well, what does unity actually look like in the local church? Because these six verses are actually teaching us that unity in the local church depends on two things. Number one, unity depends on character Number two, unity depends on conviction. So let's look at those two things together. Number one, unity depends on character. Now in verse two, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now in the first three chapters, uh, we've already seen that Contrary to what many people believe, the Christian life 
is not simply about Jesus and me. Yes, it is true that Jesus saves people one at a time and the only way into the Christian life is by making a personal response to Jesus. But having made that personal response, God brings me into his family and I suddenly find that I have brothers and sisters I didn't have before. And the very first thing that I notice, as Desiree put it so brilliantly in her testimony, is that they're all very different from me. They've got different interests. They talk differently. They look different. Uh, some of you might know that for many years, uh, Gillian and I were discipled by a lovely converted Hindu man called Vijay. Uh, Vijay was born in India, and he not only looks Indian, but uh, he's short and round and speaks English with the most appalling accent. And we love him to bits. Uh, today he's 92 years old. He's still full of the Lord, although his health is failing. But not long after we arrived here in South Africa, Vijay came to visit and we took him to see the school where Alice and Olivia, our daughters, uh, where they were attending at the time, very early in the morning, and uh, very few people were around. But uh, we did happen to bump into the sports mistress. Uh, I introduced Vijay, and this is vintage Vijay. Straight away, Vijay put his arm around me, and he said to the sports mistress, Simon is my brother. He was being absolutely sincere. But of course, the games mistress had absolutely no clue what to do with that. Because you see, Vijay and I are completely different. She didn't have a category for making sense of that statement. She found it deeply disturbing, in fact. So she made an excuse about an imaginary meeting and she scuttled away. That is absolutely typical of the way the world reacts when it comes face to face with genuine Christian unity. Christian unity is a picture of the gospel. It's a, a picture of the future that we've been learning about, isn't it, in the very first part of the book, where Paul says that when the times have reached their fulfillment, God is going to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. And you see, because God wants all people everywhere to be part of that future, Christian unity is very precious to God. Our unity matters. But you see, unity depends on Christians in the local church having the character which Paul describes for us in verse 2. I particularly want you to notice two surprises in verse 2. The first surprise is that the responsibility for cultivating Christian character lies with us. In fact, Paul actually commands it. Can you see that in your Bible? He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. 
So can you see that Christian character isn't something that simply happens to me without my active participation? I think some of us might like to think that uh, God might kind of float the qualities in verse 2 down into our souls while we're asleep. But that isn't God's design. You and I have to actively cultivate and demonstrate these qualities. And it's only as we earnestly want to do that and strive to do that that God himself graciously comes alongside and transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what we saw in the prayer last week. That's the first surprise. The second surprise in verse 2 is I think that these qualities assume that there will be tensions and difficulties within the Christian community. Now again, I think we, we love the idea, don't we, of displaying our humility and our gentleness with one another when our relationships are working pretty well, when they're not under pressure. But Paul mentions these particular qualities because he knows there are bound to be flashpoints in every local church. And in those flashpoints, these qualities are going to be absolutely essential. That's why, of course, he says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, he wouldn't have to say that if he didn't think there was a pretty sporting chance we might lose it. We've got to make every effort to keep it. So let's think about these things. Why humility? Well, perhaps the greatest threat to unity is pride. Now, think about that with me for a moment. Um, you see, if I think that church fellowship is actually really all about me and having my needs met, and uh, you think that church fellowship should really be all about you and having your needs met, well, fairly obviously, it's not going to be long, is it, before we bump into one another. But friends, that's pride, isn't it? And it's the number one killer of unity in the local church. So Paul says that instead, we are to be humble. The word literally means lowliness of mind. What does that look like in practice? Well, you'll remember that uh, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul tells us, you don't need to look it up because the verses are very familiar to you, but I do want to ask you to listen to them again with a different ear this morning as I read them again for you. This is Philippians 2 verse 3 and following. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then in the letter, Paul goes on to say that Christ, of course, gave us the perfect example by humbling himself and becoming obedient to death on a cross, putting our interests before his own interests. So have you got the picture? Humility is considering or thinking of others better than ourselves. So we're thinking it, and then we're behaving 
accordingly, following the example of the Lord Jesus. And will you notice in our passage in Ephesians that it's not a matter of being ever so slightly humble whenever we feel like it. No, look at it carefully. He commands us to be completely humble. In other words, he's saying there's always room for improvement. Nobody is ever a graduate of the school of humility. What about gentleness? Well, again, I think one of the most serious threats to unity is people who are harsh or bossy. Paul says, if that's you, actively cultivate gentleness. And I need to say at this point that I think gentleness in the New Testament is a much misunderstood word because people often confuse gentleness with weakness. But when the New Testament uses this word gentleness, it's actually talking about strength under control. That's what it is. It was, in fact, the word that they used to talk about a horse that had been broken. You see, the horse was just as powerful as it was before, but now that power is under control. Ten days ago, uh, Queen Elizabeth died at the age of 96. It's all over our television screens at the moment, isn't it? And um, throughout her life, Queen Elizabeth had a lifelong passion for horses. And uh, at her 90th birthday celebration, there was a wonderful parade of horses from all around the world doing the most astonishing and amazing things. But you see, the point is that in order for that parade to work, there was a time when each horse had to be broken. In other words, its strength had to be brought under control in order to serve the queen. That's gentleness. Then there's patience. And I think of the four qualities mentioned here, perhaps this one is the most important. Literally, the word in the original means slow to anger. And it's the word that the Old Testament uses to describe God himself. And therefore, for that reason, you see, when Christians show patience towards one another, it is a massively powerful witness to other people. I think one cross-reference will show us just how important it is. Keep a finger in Ephesians. Page forward with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes... Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. 
See, what lies behind that is that Paul knows perfectly well that when he met the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, on the Damascus Road, what he actually deserved was anger and condemnation for the way that he'd treated the church and Christians. Terrible things that he'd done. But you see, instead of venting his anger on him, Jesus made Paul an example of his unlimited patience. In fact, what he did was make Paul an advertisement for the gospel. And Paul goes on to say that as a result, some of the people who knew just what Paul was like before he met Jesus came to believe in Christ and received eternal life. Now, can you see how very important this is? Plenty of people today think that they are actually beyond God's forgiveness. They've just messed up too often. But when they see Christians being patient with one another and with unbelievers, even under perhaps the most extreme provocation, they're actually seeing something supernatural and they're being pointed to the cross. We'll come back to Ephesians because last on the list... Paul says that we are to bear with one another in love. The word in the background there is the word that Jesus himself used when he cried out about it. He was thinking about his disciples, how um, incredibly slow they were to believe in him. And Jesus said, how long shall I put up with you? It's the same word here. And that, I think, is helpful, isn't it? Because, you see, it reminds us, doesn't it, that we're not all in the same place spiritually. Uh, Some of us kind of tune into the gospel relatively quickly, and other people take really rather a long time. Paul says we must bear with one another in love. So there you have it. Uh, Humility, uh, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. If we are going to be united in the local church, We've got to make every effort to demonstrate these qualities in all our dealings with one another because unity depends on character. But there is a balance because Paul also teaches us here that unity depends on conviction. You see, there can be no unity in the New Testament sense unless we share the same convictions about the essential truths of the gospel. And uh, this little passage, only six verses, it actually contains one of the most important statements about this in the whole of the New Testament. So look with me carefully, please, at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, a lovely little detail to notice uh, in these verses is that Paul is emphasizing the unity of the church by repeating the word one seven times. And often when the Bible repeats something seven times, it's making a symbolic statement about its perfection. 
Uh, So, for example, in the Gospel of John, which we were looking at together at the beginning of the year, there are seven miracles or signs. And uh, in the book of Revelation, you know that there are seven letters to seven churches. And you see that sevenfold repetition is alerting us to the perfection of God's power in the first instance and the perfection of his word in the second, in Revelation. And here, by repeating the word one seven times, Paul is, as it were, taking out his highlighter pen in order to make the point that the church is perfectly united. And someone in the building is thinking, he got it wrong because the church is not perfectly united. The church around the world is squabbling about just about everything. Clearly, Paul was having an off day when he wrote verse 4. Well, that's not quite right, because what Paul is doing is actually making a vital distinction between the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church consists of all true believers throughout the ages. That is to say, those who died and who are with the Lord in heaven today, and all those people in the local church this morning who've been made alive with Christ and are, so to speak, spiritually speaking, sitting with him in the heavenly realms. And that invisible church, says Paul, is perfectly united. By contrast, the visible church, that is to say the church that we can see with our eyes on Sunday mornings, is actually a mixed multitude. There are some who've been made alive with Christ and there are some who have not. And for them, the Berlin Wall of sin, separating them from God, separating them from one another, that's still in place, it's still standing. So, unsurprisingly, but very sadly, squabbling and disunity is still around today. Because, because actually the local church is a mixed multitude, and because we can't always tell the difference between those who are saved and those who are not, We actually need to know what the members of the invisible church have in common. What exactly is it that gives those people perfect unity? Well, Paul highlights three experiences common to all of them, and he links each one of them with a different member of the Holy Trinity. So first of all, members of the invisible church have all experienced the same new birth. So come with me again to verse 4, where Paul says there is one body and one spirit. Now when Paul talks about the body, he's talking about the church. And what he's saying there is that every true Christian joins the invisible church in exactly the same way by the new birth through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, no doubt, you know, some of our, uh, the details of our conversion stories will actually be very different. Some of us will have been converted as adults, um, others as children. Some will have been led to the Lord by a friend. Um, Others were converted by perhaps reading the Bible on their own. The details will actually vary from person to person. But friends, when it comes to the work of the Spirit, all of us have traveled the same road. All of us know that there came a moment when we were awakened to the reality of sin in our own lives and to the fact that all was not right between us and God. And then there was a work of regeneration in our hearts in which the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see that Jesus Christ was our only hope and he enabled us to put our faith in him. And then after we trusted in Christ, the Spirit began his tremendous work of changing us to make us more like the Lord Jesus. And he's still doing that today and will continue to do it until we go to be in glory. So all members of the invisible church have experienced the same new birth. Second, all members of the invisible church have the same hope. Because in verse 4, Paul continues, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And Paul's reminding us, you see, that all believers have the same hope because we all have the same Lord. The Lord Jesus is our hope. Our hope isn't anywhere else. It's not in us. It's not in the human structures of the church. It is in Christ alone, and we're awaiting his return with great hope. And the point is that although our backgrounds and our personal histories will always be very different, all of us have a shared future. And when Jesus returns, everything that seems to divide us today will simply disappear. Third, All members of the invisible church belong to the same family. And we're in verse 6 at this point. In verse 6, Paul says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, friends, what that means is that when we come across men and women who've been born again and who are waiting for the return of of Jesus. They are our brothers and sisters. And our Heavenly Father expects us to treat them as such, showing them humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with them in love. So I hope you can see this morning, friends, that unity is a tremendous challenge. It's also a very, very high and noble calling and one that all of us should take with the utmost seriousness. I want to close this morning with a quotation from a book by a friend of ours. Some years ago, Christopher Ashe wrote a book called Remaking a Broken World. And uh, listen to how he begins. I hope it will appear on the screen. He says, We live in a world that is fractured on every level. 
from the family to international relations, it's hard to make and maintain harmony. Every day the news brings stories of broken relationships, strife-ridden communities, and warring nations. How can it be restored to peace? I believe that the ordinary local church contains within itself the seeds or the DNA of a remade world. That will seem a very surprising idea to those who think the local church is a complete irrelevance to the real world, and it will be greeted with ironic smiles by those whose experience of local churches is one of strife and tension. But I believe it to be true. I want to persuade us to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to belonging to and serving God in the fellowship of a local church. Now listen to this. And that this may prove to be the most significant thing we do with our lives. I want to convince us that the local church is at the heart of the Bible story, that it is close to the heart of the purposes of God, and that it is how a broken world will be remade. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you for choosing the local church to be a picture, a foretaste of that marvelous day when all your people really will be truly and perfectly one. Forgive us, Lord, for those many times when we've put our personal agendas first and fractured the unity of the local church. We ask that you would help each one of us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace so that you might be glorified amongst us. And we ask these things in the very precious name of him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.